about people always kind of like watching Friends because they thought they were all friends in real life. Mm-hmm. If people think we're friends in real life, <laughs> let's maybe. get that. Let's get that going. <laughs> let's establish friendship. <laughs> well, uh, this, this is X-rated. Uh, this is uh, my ex, the uh, big big rock star Ryan Whedon, um, and this is my ex, the uh, film blogger. And um, ice maker Matt Fisher. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> so yeah, I figure you know, if we if we have some banter, some non-movie related banter, mm-hmm. a little bit at first, it might make us seem more human. Well, I noticed actually in the last one while I was editing it that uh, it really takes until the end mm-hmm. for it to feel kind of natural. Mm-hmm. There's a mm-hmm. lot of nervous laughter we have going on, <laughs> and. Uh, I don't know, maybe some people will, will think that's charming, but, um, yeah, I agree. I always feel, I always feel more comfortable listening to one if I know that people are, like, yeah, just hanging out. Yeah, like, <laughs> I definitely know I had performance anxiety, but yeah, I figure if we just spend, like, ten minutes talking about, or other movies, or just general life stuff, it'll help us ease into the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything you want to, uh, tell me about your week? Um... So, non-podcast-related movies, I've been working my way through Wes Craven films. Okay. Um, they're not great. Uh, they're not awful yet. Yeah. I don't know how deep into this I'm going to go. How far uh, are you? Well, I'm going through, like, some of his lesser-known ones. Like, I'm not, like, I have yet to, like, rewatch like, the Scream franchise or anything like that. Okay. Uh, so I watched... Last House on the Left, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which was solid, I thought. I did not care for some of his other earlier stuff, but that was pretty solid. Um, and then I watched the one that he did right before Scream 4 that was called, like, My Soul to Take. And I was like, I don't know what he thinks teenagers, like, act and sound like, but like, this is pretty <laughs> far off from that. Like, they were all age-appropriate. Like, they all actually looked like high schoolers as opposed to, like, in Scream, I'm like, these people are 45. Like, <laughs> uh, these people all looked as if they were, like, between, like, 17 and 20. Right, okay. Uh, ve- like, age-appropriate teenagers, like, took place in high school, but it just seemed like he had, like, five different ideas, but, like, only budget for one movie. Oh, like, man. <laughs> New Line Cinema was like, no, we're, we're giving you one movie, that's it. Like, no extended contracts. And they just, like, shove it all in Yeah, there. so he just, like, worked it all into, like, one movie. <laughs> and it, it wasn't a great film, but it was definitely watchable. Like, I could definitely just sit back and, like, not have to think about the meaning of that movie. Yeah. Uh, I've always felt of him, I've always felt like he was a very capable director, like, all of his films that I've seen were always, like... Have you ever good. seen Shocker? No, but it is on my <laughs> list. Yeah. I was gonna say, that is, like... It's got some, like, kind of stupid stuff at the beginning. Like, it has Timothy Leary as a priest. Okay. And at first you're like, oh, this is gonna be, like, meaningful. Like, it's gonna, like, <laughs> mean something. And it doesn't, like, at all. Like... It's just, like, they needed someone to play a priest, and, like, Timothy Leary was just, like, on set that day anyway, and they're like, let's throw a collar on him, yeah. like, <laughs> and, like, yeah, that's, like, the extent of his role, is like, oh, I thought it was gonna have something to do with, uh, something. <laughs> that is one of the easier costumes, when you think about it, mm-hmm. in, um, in costume design, it's basically just, you, you have, like, a judge's robe or a graduation <laughs> gown laying around, and you just throw, like, a... I once played a judge in a short film. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What was the short film? 
Uh, it was about how judgy I was. <laughs> so typecasting. Yeah. It was like me and some friends were just like sitting at a coffee shop, like judging people as they walk by. And uh, like our guardian angel like comes down to like show us what our life will be like if we continue down this judgy path. Uh-huh. And all of our futures are where like one person was like a judge for American Idol. Like I was a real judge, like in a court of law, and I awarded myself like fifty thousand dollars in punitive damages. <laughs> uh, so it was like he came out to like show us our future, but it was like all of our futures were awesome because we were so judgmental. <laughs> uh, is this is this short film available? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think the person ever actually finished editing it. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, I think I was like twenty three at the time, okay. just a babe. Well, that's actually uh, a topic I've been wanting to broach. <laughs> Me being a babe. No. <laughs> I have also wanted what to broach What a segue. <laughs> uh, Finally, we're talking about the issues that matter on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, how do you deal with that? I mean, it's really tough, I'll bet. <laughs> um... No, but what I wanted to broach was that, like, movies in general, like, maybe we'll, we'll get really critical about some in here, which I, I mean, hope to. I, I yeah. love ripping apart sure. other people's work. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, movies are really hard to get finished, you know? It's yeah. like, if you get to, if you think of, like, that Patton Oswald thing where he's talking about the deathbed, the bed that eats people. <laughs> yeah. Do you know this bit? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like... Just the fact that people can finish a, f- a feature-length film is, like... Yeah. That's impressive. A lot of times, like, I just don't, like... F- like, I used to try and, like, write small, little, just, like, 50 words on, like, every movie I saw. Mm-hmm. And, like, okay. record, like, the, the day that I saw it. And I've fallen behind a lot recently with it. Like, I'm really behind. Um, but I find that, like, one of the things about writing it is, like, this pressure to, like, just have it wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow. And... Uh, then I heard about some author that, like, when he finished a book, he always deleted the last sentence. Hmm. Uh, because he said that, like, that urge to, like, always have it, like, in a nice little bow is so strong that he just wanted to, like, cut it off from that. Like, uh-huh. he, like, he's like, I'll never be satisfied with how it really ends. Like, I will we'll always look back in, like, 20 years and be like, I should have ended it with a different sentence or something oh, right. like that. So he's just like, if I just stop that, like, if I just make it so that it's not in a nice little package, then, like... I just can't do anything about it. Like, it, it sort of stops that urge. Well, that's uh, the saying, isn't it? It's like, it's never done, it's just do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I feel like with a movie, because it has so many moving parts to it, and, like, there's, like, uh, so many different ways to, like, cut it, or so many different takes, like, I feel like it's especially hard in those instances to decide, right. like, what is going to be on the final cut of this. Right. Like, yeah. Well, and then just, like, even getting it filmed sometimes, you know, you, you need so many people yeah. to make a film. I mean, these days it's less complicated than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, but how, uh, still, you know. Lynch chases his ideas or whatever. He doesn't have to right. get a whole crew. He just gets some shitty little camera. <laughs> well, in these days, you know, it's on your phone. Yeah. For crying out loud. Did you see that? It was a commercial that David Lynch did. It was, like, for, like... Dior or something like it was like a fragrance commercial. I don't think so. And if I remember correctly, it had uh, here further in the chronicle of Matt not being able to pronounce anything. Marion Cotillard. <laughs> oh, like, Marion Cotillard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was like yeah, fragrance or maybe it was fashion. 
something like that. It was like in France. Okay. And like he directed it, and it was just like this shitty little commercial that looked like crap. Like, <laughs> uh, there's a lot. Like Wes Anderson did one. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn also did one. Okay. Um, I don't know if I know that name. He did Drive. Most recently, Neon mm. Demon. Okay. 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 Um, and he, it was, uh, the model Blake Lively was in it, and I don't remember what product it was for. Like, I remember the director, and I remember the, any stars that were in it, but I don't remember what they were advertising. Um. Perhaps if we have listeners, they'll, they'll write in on this point <laughs> and be like, hello. I did want to tell the listeners that, uh, due, this, due to the success of our first podcast, we have, the producers have, uh, loosen the purse strings and we have ice money now that's true i was gonna say something about that so jessica walter if you're listening <laughs> your water no longer has to be lukewarm <laughs> if that was the that was the tipping, <laughs> yeah that was the deciding factor i know that in your contract it was water with ice and we just couldn't bend to that demand <laughs> proof nothing sounds like ice in a glass nothing else I would love to talk about this with you. Are you, would you really? Yeah, no. I, this, part of me, I was this is just why like, we're doing this. <laughs> he, I was like, he's gonna hate this for like whatever reason. Like, I can't even fathom like why he would hate this. And so, I was, but like, no. that's all I've been worried about all week. No, are you serious? Yeah. I was like, oh, he's gonna hate it. And Not at all. He's coming over just to break up podcast with me. <laughs> so this is only our second episode, <laughs> but it's our last. <laughs> Because I can't take another recommendation from that. <laughs> uh, so this week's movie, we are dissecting the camp cult classic, Phantom of the Paradise, directed by Brian De Palma from 1974. Uh, this is a personal favorite of mine, and when I found out that Ryan had not seen it, I was shocked and aghast and disgusted and threw my drink and <laughs> walked out of the bar and then walked back in and ordered another drink. <laughs> <laughs> the the service staff was very uncomfortable <laughs> and made sure they checked with me, is everything okay? I said, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it, put it on my... Yeah. So, uh, and I actually, after having watched it, was just as shocked that I hadn't seen it before now. Yes. This, is, this movie's completely up my alley. I was going to say, years ago, you recommended me Apple... Okay, well, that's, that came up. I was thinking about this that movie a lot in regards to this one. Okay, because, and, uh, I was like, how, how, like, I feel like Apple's, like, you know, step two or three after Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, and I actually meant to look that up when that movie came out, but... That was 1980. Okay. Uh, same year as uh, Xanadu. Right. Which I feel is also sort of indebted in some ways Indeed. to Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. Uh, so Phantom of the Paradise is sort of a loose adaptation of Phantom of the Opera more off the like 40s movie than the actual novel right um and like a little bit of the picture of Dorian Gray kind of mashed in there yeah and there's a little and bit some of Faust, Faust mashed in <laughs> yeah. there yeah there's a lot of just sort of like gothic horror classics in there uh but and I, I feel like Brian De Palma kind of like was taking like the sort of rock and roll musicals that were like big in like the late 60s and early 70s like Hair mm -hmm. and Godspell uh, 
And it, but it was like right before like glam rock started really kicking into gear. Right. So let's see. Ziggy Stardust came out in seventy two. Yeah. yeah. And then so that's two years after that. Yeah. And um, that's a that's a really interesting point that you bring up because I think um, glam rock in general was a really interesting genre of music because it was already kind of making fun of itself mm-hmm. and referential, mm-hmm. like and self aware, mm-hmm. you know. And then so. Parody, it was just, like, right for, yeah. for people to kind of make fun and, like, but also embrace it, you know, use it as a vehicle. Yeah, and, like, glam rock, it's also sort of theatrical in nature. There are characters exactly. in it a lot. You yeah. know, there's Aladdin Sane, there's Ziggy Stardust, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so it kind of, like, it lends itself to, you know, greater expansion. Exactly. Games. Um, but... Now, the, the original stage play of Rocky Horror came out in 73, but the movie didn't come out until 75. Mm-hmm. And Phantom of the Paradise and Rocky Horror, it, like, I don't like talking about them together, but it's almost hard not to. Yeah. Uh, just like they're both rock and roll musicals, they both kind of have that same sense of camp, and like they came out so close to one another, but mm-hmm. uh, Phantom of the Paradise came out just the year before, at least the movie did. Um, and there's just some things that I think that Brian De Palma nailed in terms of like sort of prescience about like the music industry hmm, okay. um like i just i feel that like he could see where it was going at that time almost so like there's the character beef right well i that's <laughs> that was one of my favorite lines i want to say i really like the writing on this quite a okay. bit we talked a little bit before doing this podcast uh, of like what's more for forgivable dialogue tropes or oh. plot tropes, yeah. And I really feel like this one didn't disappoint either way, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Um. And so I really loved that line when they finally introduced Beef. Is like he says something like, "Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the future, <laughs> Beef." <laughs> and okay. I, I burst out laughing as soon as he said that. That's, uh. just, that's great dialogue. <laughs> uh, and, and like Beef, <laughs> that is good. Uh. What I like about that character is, like, A, Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell didn't come out for, like, another two or three years. Mm-hmm. But it's like he, like, already knew that, like, character like there was going to be singers that had names like this. Like, we have Beef here, and then right. three years later we have Meatloaf. Right, like, in you're real right. Life. <laughs> and well, like, you can't have Meatloaf until you've had Beef, <laughs> so you need Beef first. And, like, the type of singer that Beef is is sort of like that, like, over-the-top power ballady right. meatloafy type upper singer. register yeah mm-hmm. uh, so I, I thought that like and then like even Beef like with his like leopard print pants and stuff like that I feel kind of like gets into like the Van Halen type era stuff like sure. the David Lee Roth like over the top lead mm-hmm. singer hair type. metal yeah, yeah. so I, I feel like yeah which he, borrowed heavily from glam yeah at least, like, definitely dress yeah definitely um yeah, so I don't know, like, there was just something about, like, that specific, like, with Beef, that character. It was like he was able to see, like, 10, 15 years, like, ahead in, like, musical trends and things right. like that. Um, but, uh... Well, real fast while we're on Beef. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, as soon as he talked, I was like, oh, man, should I be offended? Oh, because of his... Yeah, I mean, he's obviously a homosexual. Yeah. yeah, and so it's like... It's like, well, first, I was like, oh, should I be offended or just go along for the ride? And eventually I just settled on, I, I actually kind of like beef. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, but I knew he was going to 
die, spoiler alert. Like, <laughs> that's just what happens to gay characters in, in this time it, period. Yeah. Maybe. But, uh, actually, like, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, <laughs> I've forgotten I want to talk about that. I wondered if, back in the day, like, his sort of, like, fey gay lisp was, mm-hmm. like, played for laughs. Because I watch it now, and it doesn't seem that far removed from, like, actual gay entertainers I know. Yeah. Uh, so, well, to me, it actually kind of rings true, but I wondered if back in, like, 74, if, like, they threw it in for laughs. I think so, but they... I like that they kind of... He gave him a little bit of dimension yeah. later, like, when he's leaving. Yeah. And he's all like, I have been in show business for third whatever years, and yeah. I'm not going on... If I'm running away, it's not because I'm have stage fright, it's because, yeah. you know, it's like, they, they give him a little bit more. Yeah. Um, like, he is a supporting character, you can only give them so much depth. Right. Like, yeah, like, they made him a real character, like, he, like, it wasn't just there for laughs, but, yeah, I always wondered that, like. But or, it's also just code, you know, so it's like, yeah. this is the, the sissy, you know, this yeah. is the, this is the homo, and like, you know, it was, it was like, pretty heavy-handed in a way, yeah. <laughs> but like, I didn't mind it, I honestly didn't, because, he ended up becoming, like, the most lovable character, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, like, he, he wasn't, like, one of the villainous characters. Like, he was, like, he was a ardent professional. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Um, and he had a level head. Like, it wasn't like he was, you know, totally spaced out or coked out or a yeah. sex addict or something. Like, I felt his portrayal was pretty fair. Yeah. Um, he had the be- my I wrote down one of his lines. What was it? I know drug real from real real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Brian De Palma did a lot of stuff in the theater, so I feel like he might have just... That just might have been a type, like, a person that he ran into a lot. And yeah. I was like, well, I gotta put that in here. Mm-hmm. I like... I think it was fair treatment. It feels a little caricatured at first, but yeah. then afterwards I was like, no, I like beef. Yeah. I'm okay with beef. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. had no beef with beef. Uh, and so to, to go back to the prescience of the movie a little bit... Oh, yeah. I also feel like the death records thing, I oh, feel yeah. like that really kind of hit on, like the nihilism that would come, like, later in, like, the music industry. Sure. Uh, like, the whole 90s? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know, like, there is, like, death row records now, I know, but, like, yeah, I don't know, there was something about, like, death, like, that seems so far ahead of its time to me, like, mm-hmm. watching it, like, like, not even, like, trying to, like, envision it at the time, like, even kind of now having a record called Death with, like, your logo being a dead bird. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. For some reason, that just seems so forward-thinking to me that, like, it really seemed like he was, like, thinking well outside, like, the musical mainstream at the time. Well, I don't want to throw too much water on that for you, but it I, it looks like, when I did a little research, that originally it was called Swan Song Records. Oh, yeah. Which is sort of like Death, but then, like, Led Zeppelin. That's their record label. Yeah, like had just come out with that label like yeah. months before the movie came out, and like so they had to do all this cover up, like post production cover up kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree, though. I mean, definitely, it's like the same thing though. Swan song means like your last song. Yeah. Moving out, blah blah blah. So same same yeah. idea. But yeah. And I, actually, if you cho- if he chose to re- to replace it with Death Records, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fine. I'll just call it Death then. <laughs> So much for artistic nuance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, the, and there is sort of the uh, recurring theme of birds in the movie, too. Right. Because you got uh, Phoenix. Phoenix. You got Swan. Swan. By mean, the way, the name of his house is the Swanage. <laughs> I mean, 
It's fine. I just was like, I don't know, you can come up with something. So that guy was like a real, like, singer, songwriter? Right, yeah. Uh, Paul Williams. Yeah. I, I didn't know. I don't remember him ever being a pussy magnet. But, <laughs> yeah, that was, my, that was my main beef with him as the character. It was just sort of like, oh, he's not... I don't understand. But then I thought I thought about it a little more, and it's like, well, you know, maybe that just speaks to the fact that people are attracted to power, mm-hmm. you know, too. And, and uh, he's definitely, like, a very powerful... He had that cool demeanor to him, mm-hmm. you know, that ice-cold, sort of heartless Hillary Clinton type. <laughs> <laughs> She's just not likable. <laughs> very important in a candidate. Yeah. Uh, he Okay, well, he wrote... I just want to talk for a second about some of the songs he wrote because he wrote, he also did the music for this, yeah. Paul Williams. Uh, and um, I was really surprised to find out that he wrote uh, Fill Your Heart, the Bowie song, off of um, Hunky oh, Dory. did he really? Yeah, with oh. someone else. But um, that's the only song on that album that David Bowie didn't write, apparently, looks like. Hmm. Um, he also wrote We've Only Just Begun and Rainy Days and Mondays by the Carpenters. I knew the two Carpenter songs, yeah. And friggin' Rainbow Connection from the Muppet movie. He wrote Rainbow Connection? Yeah, and my favorite from that movie, Moving Right Along, <laughs> which is a great song. I might have to rewatch the Muppet movie. It's been... I haven't watched it since I was a child. Yeah. I, I, I did it a couple years ago. It's really fun. Is it? Yeah, it's okay. really good. Um, but yeah, Rainbow Connection, Paul Williams. There okay. you go. Uh... Yeah, all right. <laughs> I was just, I got really into the audio geek part of this movie okay. at some point. Uh, and so, like, when uh, you see him in that, like, pod of synthesizers yeah. doing the singing, um, I, of course, was like, well, is that a real synthesizer? Like, I need to look this up. And in the end credits, they say where it lives. And <clears throat> I looked that up, and it's actually, um, it's a real synth. Um, it's still around. It's at a place called The Record Plant, which is in Los Angeles. It's okay. a recording studio. Uh, and they've named it Tonto, which stands for uh, something, something new, tonal orchestra, something like oh. that. Yeah. And it's featured prominently, this is a really fun fact, in Songs of the Key of Life by Stevie Oh, Wonder. really? Yeah, apparently. That's that synthesizer cool. is on that album. Wow. Look yeah. at all the fun facts you're bringing to this. Well, I just, I got into the audio part of it. And like, that studio, and the studio where he's like sliding the mixers and everything, that same, sliding the sliders in that same scene, um, saying, Filters. Dolby's. Um, that is the same studio that's that actual, um, what was it called? The Record Plant. Okay. So, yeah. Well, that's a lot of fun. Fun facts. There yeah, you go. Yeah, that is fun. Yes. <laughs> um, so one of the things that, that sort of makes the stands apart, A, it's not like really any other De Palma movie. Uh, so it kind of stands out like when you're watching mm-hmm. a bunch of them and they're all Hitchcock homages, like, this one kind of, like, stands out. Right. Going through them. Um, but I gotta say, like, there's still, like, all these, like, little De Palma-isms throughout the movie. Go on. Um, so he's big into double focuses. Okay. Um, like, even, like, when Quentin Tarantino does them, he calls them De Palma double focuses. Oh. Um, and they're really, like, in De Palma's heyday, like, he uses them at least once per movie. Uh, and he, and he's also really into like long shots, oneers. Okay. Um, just like letting yeah. the camera roll. And this one has those two things combined. Yes, I wanted to talk about this scene so yes. much. That's when I when that when that started happening. Uh, I was immediately just like, 
not necessarily brought out of the movie, but then suddenly was just like, oh my god, this is happening at the same time. This is, yeah. And I was like, is it the same take? Is this? Is yeah. This... I mean, it looks like the same take. I don't know. I think it certain. is. I think it is too. Though. I think it is. It's like definitely synced up in such a way that like the illusion is complete. Yeah. Well, I was like, like when you see because there's times when you see the bodyguard. I don't know manager guy. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah. And he's like when he's moving, it's exactly the same because you can see him in both screens. Yes. Um. um yeah, and you could just kind of see, like, what was happening in one. You could see, like, the shadows, and, like, people... Re- it definitely looked as if it was... There was just two different crews filming at the same exact yeah. time, and just having this one long shot. God, uh, that must have been all day. Yes. They did that. That was all that was scheduled for that day. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I love that scene, A, because, like, when you when you start to fetishize style in movies, like, that's the sort of thing you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> um... But also, I think it really captures the feeling of, like, a big dress rehearsal in a show. Like, it's chaotic. There's a bunch of different moving parts. Mm -hmm. Everyone's kind of doing, like, their own thing and, like, trying to, like, stay on board for, like, the one big project. And it was, like, at the beginning of the scene, you see, like, the Phantom put the bomb in the car. But it goes on so long, and there's so many different, like, little parts where you're, like, looking all over the screen. Right. You're listening to different parts. By the time the bomb goes off, you're like, oh, that's right. That was, like, five minutes ago. Right. Yeah. I had forgotten about that. And so it's like, oh, yeah, you could, like, sabotage a show pretty easily because, like, everyone's just focused on, like, their own thing. Like, oh, yeah. Like, it would be just chaos trying to, like, identify what happened and what went wrong, but... And that speaks to a bigger theme of this movie, which is that, like, egomania slash, like, fame can lead you down the yeah. wrong path. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, A, so about a year or so ago, two years ago, I watched all the Phantom of the Opera adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is far and away the best. Like, <laughs> uh, there's really just, like, no good Phantom of the Opera adaptation. Yeah. Like, the old silent one's, like, good, but it's, like, it's silent film. And, like, <laughs> I know, I hate to be that guy, but it's, like, just, I don't know, the, like, that old style of film. And, like, I like Buster Keaton. Like, I love, like, the old silent clowns. Mm-hmm. But silent drama doesn't hold the same for me. Right. Um... And so, well, like, because they're still trying to use it as a storytelling medium. Yeah. You know? And it's like... And they just have, like, the Wurlitzer organ as, like, all the music. I'm like, this is, like... I gotta deal with, like, 90 minutes of just, like, this. And so, like, really, like, other than... Other than this, like, that silent one is probably the next best. And, like, even the more modern ones, it's just, like, downhill from there. Yeah. Um, oh, one thing that I really liked about this, too was when, like, I felt like De Palma really knew when not to direct, or he knew what to direct. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, there's definitely the temptation to just, like, make every scene dynamic. Right. You know, Michael Bay it up. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's his one directorial style, basically. That everything is super dynamic. It needs every every yeah. moment, yeah. Um, and, like, in the opening credits... It's really just these, like, stationary shots of, like, the band playing the Juicy Fruits. Mm-hmm. But one one thing that I always appreciate is when directors find, like, little things to direct that other directors, like, bypass. Mm-hmm. And, like, the little, the marquee opening credits. I love those! Yes. Yeah, I, I wrote that down, too. I, I love it because it was just, like, opening credits, like, they're usually just something that gets, like, streamlined out. You get, you know, someone else to take care of it for you. Yeah. And I feel like in this instance, like, he just had the camera doing just, like, stationary shots with just, like, cuts at, like, you know, 45-degree angles and stuff like that. 
but that like he took pride in like these marquee style opening <clears throat> credits right. yeah uh that i thought were great and i there's just you know, I can count the number of great, like, opening credits on, like, one hand. Right. Um, and most of the time, the movies that follow aren't great. <laughs> um, it really gets you, it just, like, gets you there immediately, you know? Like, yeah. Like, you're in that world, like, boom. Yeah. Cause, and it's the same sort of thing, like, if it would be like if you're going to a show somewhere, and then as as you approach the theater, those lights are blinking, and then you're, like, you're in that world. Yes, you know? and yes. So you really just get to the, and then I would like to follow that up. With um, the long uh, shot he has right after that, which is uh, the fir- second musical performance. Only yeah. see uh, the main character, whose name I can't remember, Winslow something, Yeah. Uh, performing his song. And it's just one 360-degree shot around him, and there's yeah. no cuts. And it's really nice, because it's like you, you feel intimate and connected to this character right away you know there's no distancing whatsoever yeah yeah you have that nice song he's up there mm-hmm. doing his thing mm-hmm. um i also like because you get that sort of like bird's eye point of view to go back to birds uh oh, yeah. like the bodyguard and swan right oh i forgot that came first that came before that well uh but i love it how there's like this negative space like focusing on winslow as he's like setting up down there mm-hmm. like you see him just like sort of off in the distance in the background. Uh, and I loved how, like, at the end, like, the big white gloves came up and obscured it yeah. and clapped for it. I was like... Because you don't see Swan. You just see, like, the bodyguard off to the side of the screen, right. like, talking at the camera. And then these just big white hands come in. I was like, that's a cool little directorial choice. I right. like that. Well, and he makes it so that that bodyguard is talking to the camera. Yes. Which is which was weird at for me at first. It was disorienting because I thought he was talking. It was like a fourth wall breaking moment, mm. and I was like, mm. "Is he talking to us? Like, what's he? Ta- what's is he like setting the scene kind of situation?" And then you realize, like, "Oh no, he's talking to another person who's off screen." Yes, which I thought was a cool choice. Um. So yeah, there, there's just. He knew, like, just when to, like, let it be and, like, let a shot be a shot or, like, let the performer sort of hold, you know, the the, uh, torch. Um, And then he also knew, like, when he's like, okay, I'm going to direct the hell out of this scene. Yeah, we need to make this dynamic. Yeah. Basically, all of Act 3 was that, I felt. Like, (laughs) just, like, let's cuts and, like dynamic film work and once just... it gets into like the Faustian stuff I was like what are we getting into here? <laughs> yeah like when when Swan's like I'm also under contract I was like what does that mean and then like yeah. it comes out later you're like oh okay mm-hmm. uh, it's a fun twist that's why that's what I meant about like uh, the plot keeps twisting at the end like oh I wasn't I didn't see that coming and like yeah. he has to if he kills him then he's going to be killing himself because he got stabbed. Yeah. And um, I think that's what they mean in the prologue in that first Juicy Fruit song when they say, that's the price you pay for love. Mm. Is mm. what I'm assuming. You have to die. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well, there was something I wanted to bring up here. Um, oh, well, just speaking of the Juicy Fruits in general, um, they're kind of like the Greek chorus of this Really? Of this film, I feel like. Yeah, because they kind of, they give you that preview, that prologue kind of set up what's going on, and then like, because I guess they make three appearances, right? Do they? I don't think I ever actually paid attention to the lyrics in that song, or in their songs. Well, the first one is like, he basically, it's basically them like laying out the, the mood, the film, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, at least I thought so. Um, but then... Um, that would make sense. Yeah, but then they give you the like... When they're like proto guar and they're like killing, 
audience members. Yeah. And um, they're kind of commenting on, you know, death and spookiness, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't think too much about this. I just wrote, are they a Greek chorus? But I guess that, that, that leads me into, like, what's, what's the role of the horror in this mm. film? Um, like, what's, wh- where does the, like, the scary part lead this, make this story go further? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Like, it's, because there's some people who call it a horror movie, and, and I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, there's definitely, like, <clears throat> gothic themes, mm-hmm. like, sort of classic horror themes, like, with, like, the Faust and... right. Uh, and is he doing a send-up of, of horror in any way, do you think? Like, I don't know. Like, there's definitely times where, like, I'll watch a Brian De Palma movie, and I'm like, I saw that in a shitty slasher movie, like, yeah. you know, like, ten years earlier. So it's like, was he also watching that, or... <laughs> Sorry, audience. Matt got a text. <laughs> um, oh, I have another fun little fact that yeah. I noticed during the credits. Yeah. Um, set dresser. Yeah. For this film, uh-huh. which is, I think, the equivalent of like continuity with props, basically, is my yeah. was my best understanding of that. And if anybody who works in films and is listening knows better, please correct me. Yeah. Um, but for this film, it was a young woman by the name of Sissy Spacek. Oh, really? Yes. Who later huh. went on to perform as Carrie, Carrie. in uh, Brian De Palma's Carrie. other masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. So. I don't know if that's, like, where he first met her, or oh, I didn't yeah. delve that far into it, but I did remember seeing that in the credits and saying, wait a minute, this huh. needs more. Um, oh, well, just that, like, so this also, this is what made me think of the apple, okay. um, is the scene, so, like, Beef dies, yeah, and they, like, thrust a microphone in, in Phoenix's face, and is like, go sing a song! And she comes out and sings this lovely ballad. And it's actually a really strong song. I actually really like this song. But the audience just sits quietly, <laughs> yeah. and they're just just enraptured by Phoenix. And it's like, after this crazy, raucous number, it's like, it may be the biggest, like, noisiest rock number in the sh- in the movie. And then it's like, followed immediately by a ballad, and they're all just sitting there. And like, where, I mean, and somebody dies at the end of, the, of that. And then they're all just like, mm-hmm, yeah, I like this. <laughs> and that's the same thing happened at the beginning of the Apple, where it's like it starts off with this crazy disco number, and it's like on a you know like a American Idol style show. And I was like, well, that's pretty good, but like you know, and, and it like goes to they have like these meters of audience clapping, and it's like pretty good, pretty good. And then it's followed up by this horrible folk duo that are just like <laughs> la la la, and then the audience is like, wow, oh my god. It's like, my suspension of disbelief was just a little, was tested, I will say. out there that uh, are fans of Phantom of the Paradise or want to check out films that are oh, like yeah, Phantom yeah, yeah. of the Paradise, I would recommend either Apple, which I could see us talking about. That was going to be my challenge, because you had a challenge. Remember you had a challenge last week about the group? Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah I was going to say, if we wanted to do that for this one, I would challenge people to watch the Apple. Okay. And see if you can get through it without, <laughs> <laughs> without any uh, mind-altering substances. Sure. Or, um, 
it's it's sort of a mind altering substance of its own. <laughs> um, yeah. And then uh, I would say that if 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 you see Fetch from Paradise and you like that style, I would highly recommend Blowout, the other Brian De Palma movie uh, from like '78, I think, with John Travolta. Okay. Um, it is very good. Also has one, probably the best use of a double focus, like really pushing the narrative mm-hmm. along. Like, yeah, it, it just has like, A, it looks great. Like just the way that it's done, it looks very artistic. Mm-hmm. But then it's actually like one of the most important plot points oh. in the movie. So it's like you're getting this thing that just like looks great and you're getting like the juicy part of the plot like all at once. Sweet. So I gotta say I'm turned on to Brian De Palma now after watching this. Oh yeah. I don't know if I'll be able to sit through his entire oeuvre uh, as you have n- I mentioned before it's painful. Nor should you. <laughs> but um yeah, um, I'm totally into that checking out the highlights now. So sort of an off topic question. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh I want to know, do you often cry at movies? <sighs> often no. No. Uh, there was a time period where I was a little more susceptible to it. Um, these days, less so. Although, I will say, last week's film, I watched, ended up watching twice, and both times the ending, like, wrecks me. Really? The dancing? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Is it just DeBarge? (laughs) (laughs) It's the song. It's the swelling of the music. Uh... No, I don't know. It has to do with, like, I think it's just, well, that film it was just, like, released, finally, from, like, all this yeah. tension, because it's just, like, yeah. tension the whole movie, and then finally we get this, like, catharsis, you know, and so, like, I think I just get to breathe along with him or something, but, um, in, ge- in general, it takes a lot for me to cry these days, and usually if I do, it's from happiness, like, oh, it's really? really hard for me to get so sad anymore that I cry to film. Oh. Yeah. Just no sympathy for others. <laughs> I just I don't know. I uh sadness is such a personal thing whereas like joy is is a, an empathy is something I'm more em- empathetic with. Okay. Um and so if I'm experiencing great joy as in like somewhere some film um then that's more likely to bring me to Two tears and some some great sadness. I wonder what that says about us. <laughs> well, yeah. What? How about you? What's uh? What's I find answer? the older I get, the more likely I am to cry at a movie. Oh. Um. Usually, if there's company around, I can like keep myself together. Mm-hmm. But like watching a movie by myself, like I will definitely well up. Just let it go. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the last movie that like I really like bawled at. But yeah, for uh, it's definitely like I used to never cry at movies. And then I something changed probably about five years ago, mm-hmm. and then it started kind of becoming like a regular thing. Yeah. Well, there's nothing to be ashamed of. I know that's what I'm talking about. Oh. <laughs> like, I didn't bring it up if I didn't want to talk about it. That's true. I guess you brought this up. Um, yeah, I used to cry in the I used to cry in the, the theaters a lot more. I guess I don't really go to see um, criers as much. Yeah, I almost cried at the end of Carol, even though like I knew yeah. what was coming, like. That scene when, like, they're at the restaurant. Like, the, the scene at the restaurant mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. I was just like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I think I teared up at that. Yeah. But it was just, like, a single tear. <laughs> these days, that these days that I can do that. I don't know if I count that as crying, though. Is that crying? A, well, 
I'm not saying like when was the last time you bawled. Well, because like... there's definitely like I've had boo hoo, <laughs> ugly face, Claire Danes cries at films, and that that's what I was talking about at first. Because yeah, I mean like I, I well up once in a while. I'm like, well, that's so sad. Claire Danes, if you ever want to be on the show, we retract <laughs> so everything. Sad. We have ice now. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I typically hate musicals. Okay. Thanks <laughs> to the Paradise, of course, excluded. Uh-huh. Um, and someone was trying to, like, prove me wrong. Like, musicals are great. And I was like, okay, well, then you're going to have to sit down and watch one of my favorite musicals. Like, uh-huh. And there was, like, a big group thing. There was, like, six of us. Okay. And he made me watch Into the Woods. Not the new movie version with Meryl Streep. Oh, the, like, but, like Bridget... What, Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it was, like, three hours long. Isn't it like a stage version yeah. too? It's not yeah, even really it's a film, film. stage. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's always and, trouble. Yeah, <laughs> and everyone's just like, Ugh. Uh, and then of course I put on Dance in the Dark. Oh yeah, there you go. So we were drinking for like the full three hours of like watching Into the Woods, and then we had like two and a half hours of Dance in the Dark to go through, uh-huh. and we're still drinking the whole time, and the whole room is crying hard. Like, oh yeah, box of tissues out. Like, yeah, all six of us. Well, actually, one person has a heart of stone. Did not care for the movie. (laughs) (laughs) The other five of us were seriously, like, blowing noses, crying so hard during that movie. It's so funny because you you were talking about movies you cry, and that's the first one actually came to my mind because I saw it in the theater. I didn't know... You saw it in the theater? I did, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know anything about it except Mm. that Bjork was in a movie, and I was a huge Bjork fan, and so I was like... I must have been like 20, 19 or 20 when it came out. And so I just like went with a friend. I no, I, no, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't even know, even know it was a musical. I just okay. thought, Bjork is in a movie. I want to see it. And yeah, the last like 45 minutes, I'm just, me and my friend are just a wreck. And my hoodie, I remember, was just, I didn't have tissues because I didn't think about it. It was just this tiny little independent theater in Tacoma. And I was just like wiping all over my hoodie. And my hoodie was just covered in snot. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> no, just like the visual of like uh, like the physical There's embodiment so of your much sadness. crying. Yeah, so much crying. Oh man, if I ever make a coming of age movie, I'm gonna put that in it. <laughs> like that's just like a good representation of like uh, like the physical embodiment of emotions is like right mm-hmm. there. That's good. I didn't wash that hoodie for like a day or two because <laughs> I wanted to remember that feeling. Which is disgusting <laughs> now as an adult, but you know it had poetic. I felt like I was being poetic. Then. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I can kind of see that too. Show everybody, look how much I cried. <laughs> um, but, uh, feels good. Oh, next week. Next week. Yeah. Yeah, you got your. I have a choice. A yeah, I think what I would like to choose for next week. Yeah. Um, is Whiplash. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah. get around to seeing that one. Yeah, I, I wanted to pick... I chose this one because I wanted to pick one that you haven't seen again. Yeah. And I also wanted to pick one that... A recent movie that blew me away. And mm-hmm. visit it, mm-hmm. um, revisit it shortly after it blew me away. I watched this, like, maybe about a year and a half ago was when I first saw it. And so I want to get a quick revisit of it, like, you know, after, after already seeing it and see if it still holds up. Because sometimes you can see something and be caught up in it. And then, um, I guess I just want to, and then if it's lame later, that could be like years later, but I want to see if it's like the same thing. Just see how I evaluate it this time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, sort of 
seeing if something has staying power is always sort of important, mm-hmm. you know, before you recommend it out to, yeah. to someone. So. And even just like, sometimes you can recommend something from a couple of years ago and then somebody will see it and some, enough has changed societally or yeah. artfully that it's like, that sucks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so. Oh yeah. See. Like I remember when I watched Mysterious Skin like right. two years ago. Like oh god, I know like, it just doesn't hold up as much. It as really want it does to. not. Like the dialogue in that movie's so bad. I know. Uh, I mean, JGL still adorable as ever, but that was his like that was his breakout gritty role. star turn. You yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. Before that, it was like supporting roles in Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah. And he goes and plays a gay prostitute. Which, <laughs> really on paper, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the kind. That's the type of movie you do to like shed your. Uh-huh. Like, good boy image mm-hmm. yeah yeah but he, he dove in head first into that one and came out looking he, good yeah yeah he, he did a right. good job in that yeah um jay gore oh <laughs> probably doesn't want to be called that i'm sorry <laughs> jgl <laughs> well he's my he's pretty much the same age as me so i feel like we're you know like no, I, no, I like it. <laughs> on par or equals, so I can just call least, him nicknames. It's gonna be the least flattering. <laughs> it sounds like some weird like orc character or something, doesn't Jagor. it? Just like I am Jagor. <laughs> Jagor has a potion for you. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, sounds like uh, the shitty sidekick in a uh, Black Cauldron or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my. So, uh, to add to our list of invitees, Claire Danes, Jessica Walter, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, we've got a space on the You know, just, like, let us know. There's a space right here. Yeah. Uh, you can reach out to us on our Twitter. we got a Twitter now. X-rated movies. I specifically chose... Oh, we should plug our stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> We're professionals. Um... Yes, please uh, follow us, tweet at us, at X-Rated Movies um, mm-hmm. on Twitter. Uh, I chose X-Rated Movies as opposed to X-Rated Films, oh. uh, yeah, that because I like... figured there was going to be some things that we watch that are not art. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good idea. Some of these things are going to be kind of crappy videos, uh-huh. so I consciously chose not to call everything we watch films. Yeah. Good idea. Uh and it so, is yeah. X-E-X. E-X. Rated. rated movies. Now you can uh, like our Facebook page. Right. Uh, which unfortunately is Rated X Movies. Okay. Because Facebook had a problem with X-Rated Movies. They said that there were words in that that Facebook did not allow for their <laughs> pages. Okay. So I determined that it was the E-X that was causing problems. I see. And I moved it, and they no longer had a problem with it. Okay. So, well, Twitter is X-Rated Movies, and our Facebook page is Rated X Movies. Okay, yeah, easy enough. They uh, just flip it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we will probably tweet back, because we don't have a lot going on. <laughs> so please do that. Yeah. Yeah.